Good morning, Arizona. Why don't you come on around back with us as we get started in an outdoor living hour, 8 o'clock sharp every Saturday morning. It is the second Saturday of the month, so we're joined by certified arborist Mr. John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service. He's brought a wonderful tree of the month, and along with... uh, Got my notes here, and I got my pen in hand, and we're going to be talking pruning. Lots of stuff. Yeah, you'd think in January things would be slowing down, and they are, but there's still a lot to talk about today. And we have callers already lined up at one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Eric and Whitman will start off first with lots of trees to prune. You can text questions to 411-923. Or if you'd like to send a picture, maybe a little plant or insect identification of something that's crawling around on your trees, you can snap a photo and email that to info at rosieonthehouse.com. But let's start off with the tree of the month. This is this is one of my personal favorites. Our tree of the month is the live oak tree, the Quercus virginiana. It's a really amazing tree. It's uh, widely distributed across the southern United States, but there's a couple of varieties that do really well here. And the live oak tree is an evergreen tree, so it keeps its leaves all year. So if you're not wanting to uh, be looking at branches only during the winter, uh, this is a good choice. It grows to about 35, 40 feet tall here. It can grow much taller in other parts of the country, but that's a pretty good standard um, maximum height for it here. There's a couple different varieties. You can get one called the Cathedral Live Oak, which is more upright in appearance, grows a little taller than it does wide. Then the Heritage Live Oak, which is a little broader, um, you know, about as wide as it is tall, so it's more of a rounded tree form. But it's got a nice, glossy, dark green leaf, um, dark brown bark, and it's a really pretty striking, dominant tree in the landscape. What we love about them is they're very low maintenance, and they just don't require much pruning. We just don't recommend, you know, thinning them out real heavily. You don't really need to do that. They grow, it's kind of a moderately uh, fast-growing tree, as as I've said in, uh, in the past, if the tree grows more slowly, it tends to have less litter. The faster-growing trees are putting on wood more quickly, and they're dumping leaves all the time. They're photosynthesizing, and, uh, and uh, their metabolism is just is, is more uh, vigorous. So they're going to be dropping leaves and litter as a result of that. So live oaks are probably on the moderate side of that spectrum. And they're a strong tree, really, really durable uh, we don't see m- many branches breaking on these trees. They have a kind of an upright growth habit with a central leader and, um, and uh, you know, d- uh, smaller side branches, but usually a strong central br- uh, uh, trunk in the middle, and which makes them really desirable in, in certain applications. On the tire swing or love, suite sing, love seat swing uh, tree variety, this one scores about a 10. It's nice on the heritage. Yes, it'll have some branches that are high enough that you can usually put a little put something in. Probably not your best one for that. For if you're looking for a swing tree, there might be a couple others I would recommend. But yeah, it's um, it's it's a, a really um, awesome tree for uh, for providing shade. We like them too because they're a um, they uh, the litter issue is they do have a few. Um, acorns that will drop seasonally in the, in the fall, but other than that, you know, it's considered a, a clean tree, and 
a lot of people are really looking for that. They they don't want a, a, a tree that's going to be a, a dumping stuff in the pool or all over the patio or going to be a constant headache with raking leaves. And even when the leaves do drop on oaks, they're a bit they're a, a thick waxy leaf, so the, they tend to be pretty heavy and they stay where they drop. A lot of trees have very light uh, leaves, like the bottle tree. Oh my goodness. Uh, and they're like crepe paper, so when they drop, then they just scatter with the slightest wind, and they're all over the yard. Or and, and the oaks are flat and small, so like you said, it's it's hard for the wind to pick it up. We're like a mulberry tree. Yeah. It's multi-shaped and it's big. It, there it's you the go. perfect yeah. tr- leaf to catch a, the wind breeze and blow everywhere. I know. When, <laughs> when, when we have a lot of leaf litter on the ground, we either hope for no wind at all, or a whole bunch of wind that will <laughs> carry the leaves to your neighbor's yard. <laughs> yeah, the oaks are good for that cause. And you've got a note here about the insect population in the spring. Yeah, we have a—we um, want to talk a little bit about the warm winter we have. One of the um, the downsides of having a, a warm— Oh, I'm sorry. That's not tied to the tree of the month. That's number four. I'm, you're right. I, I, I'm, yeah, you're I jumping ahead here. of us. <laughs> We do want to talk a little bit about the warm winter and some of the concerns that we have as a result of that. And before we get to that, just on our live oak, what kind of water requirements is this type of tree? Does this type of tree require? It's not extremely thirsty. Um, it, it does need a deep, deep regular watering like normal trees. Nothing in 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 particular. Occasionally, a little bit of of nitrogen fertilization would be appropriate for all the trees. That you uh, rake up the leaf uh, litter. Uh, you're, we're breaking up that normal na- nitrogen cycling that occurs when a leaf litter um, decomposes over time. So if you're raking up your leaf litter in your yard, it might be a good idea maybe annually to consider a, a nitrogen fertilization for all your trees, and uh, oaks would be included in that for sure. Now, what's the best practices for parking under a tree? And, you know, a lot of people, that's the, and, and you see them in parking lots a lot, you know, trees, and you can always tell if somebody— is new to Arizona, or this is their first time to Arizona in the summer, because a new person would be parked right up front. Somebody that's been here for summer, they're all scattered under every little piece of shade you can find. It might even be just one little tiny branch, but they're fighting over that parking spot for shade. But, I mean, you really don't want to be putting your vehicle on the top of the root structure of trees. Yeah, of course. If it's in a parking lot, a paved lot, you know that that's designed for that. That's that's one thing. But yeah, you don't want to be driving over uh, the root zone of any of your trees. Uh, unfortunately, uh, people do that in Arizona because shades at such a premium. People want to park under there, or they want to um, store materials under underneath the trees. We've seen construction sites where they'll dump sand and materials and, and stack pallets of materials underneath trees, and they and they think. Well, as soon as we, uh, when we're done with the construction project, we'll move everything out from under the tree, and then we'll be we'll be good. But they fail to realize that all that that heavy material over the root zone has compressed the oxygen out of the soil, and that that soil compaction can have a long-lasting impact uh, on the roots of the tree. So, try to stay off the root systems of your trees. You know, minimal uh, traffic, whether it's pedestrian or vehicular traffic. Uh, is recommended for the the root zone of the tree, at least out to the drip line and beyond it, if possible. So, you know, wherever the the leaves of of the tree end, if you draw a a vertical line down to the ground, that's called the drip line. Uh, That that little area inside that drip line, uh, we just consider it sacrosanct. You know, you don't want to be going in there and doing a lot of compaction and trafficking, especially not driving a car. 
Uh, we'll see that a lot. Trucks on construction sites look for the nearest trucks to slide their, their truck under. And not, not so good for the trees, especially if you got a construction project that you're building around that tree. Uh, it's a shame when, when uh, uh, a lot has gone into landscape design and uh, to, to build a, a, a landscape around some feature trees. And then it ends up that the construction impacts were so heavy that within two or three years, those feature trees decline and die. And so um, it's really important to take into consideration all those um, negative impacts on the root zone of those trees that you're working around. Uh, keep those protected. In fact, we suggest sometimes building a protected barrier around the tree, either setting up a chain link fence or some sort of snow fencing and marking it as a tree protection zone so that the construction uh, uh, vendors and contractors uh, realize that, hey, this area, we can't work inside this. And you'll be really happy at the end of the construction project that your trees survive. And you mentioned there's not a lot of pruning or maintenance that this tree requires. Nope. What What about summertime? I mean, it's not quite native to the desert, uh, but it is. It's really drought tolerant. Yeah, it's it, that's what, why the, the, the couple of varieties that I mentioned uh, and the ones that are sold here locally are really well adapted to. I mean, they're not they're not great. They don't just like all the trees. Even some of our desert trees struggle through a really really wicked hot summer. Um, but for the most part, it's a, a really drought tolerant tree. Handles a lot of wind. People don't realize that it's not just the high temperatures. It's the wind uh, which desiccates leaves and dries them out that causes a lot of the sun problems that we have. So uh, this is pretty uh, wind and drought tolerant. If you were planting a live oak. And you had bare ground, digging the, your water lines. You've got the design. What type of watering system are you using to support this? A 30-foot tree is pretty big. Well, water is water. So any, any delivery system you choose is going to be good if you give them adequate depth of saturation. So you want a, probably an 18-inch to 24-inch depth of saturation on all your mature trees. So whether you're doing it with a drip irrigation system or a, a bubbler system, some sort of a flood irrigation system, it doesn't really matter, just so you get that same depth of, of saturation. So if you're using an, you know, a, 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 a drip irrigation system, you just have to select an a, uh, adequate number of emitters with a dispense rate, a gallons per hour dispense rate uh, that's sufficient to deliver enough water to get you that depth of saturation. If you're doing a drip line, you had mentioned 30 feet tall, so that's about, you know, 30 feet from side to side is what you want. So you want about a 15-foot mm-hmm. radius right. around the tree that you run your line around so you've got plenty of opportunity to add and grow. What it needs when you plant it from a 5-gallon is going to change pretty quick once right. You'll be moving the those, roots. You need to be moving those emitters out. And, and during your design process, sometimes you can just, you know, create the system that has the larger radius so you don't have to be constantly moving it out every three or four years as a tree matures. But yeah, you can all just extend those systems and just make sure you're adding adding more uh, emitters to the system. What we like to say, if you have an 18-inch uh, saturation spread on an emitter when it's uh, uh, gone through its cycle, you want to have those uh, saturation patterns overlapping so that you, you cover the entire root zone of the tree. So make sure you have them close enough to one another so that their saturation patterns touch. When we come back, we'll also be talking about uh, other items on January's tree care calendar, including pruning deciduous trees, 
lightly pruning evergreens, frost protection, time for olive sprays. We've got a couple other notes here. You'd mentioned the warm winter and what will that lead to in the summer. If you'd like to join the conversation, it's one 767 4348 No need to feel stumped. We'll be right back with Rosie on the House, certified tree care experts from Integrity Tree Service. Starting off this segment with Eric, and Whitman wants to talk about lots of trees to prune. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Really good. Thank you for calling. Nay, no problem. I have some acreage out in Whitman, about 10 acres worth, and I have a lot of mature trees on them. I'm talking mesquites that probably have a 24-inch diameter or bigger base uh, and some Palo Verdes about along that same lines as long as as well as some younger trees. What is a good time of year to prune these? And I'm talking one of my mesquites I'm going to have to do some major pruning on because it's got big limbs that are laying down and they're dead. some are dead, some are alive. So I want to clean it up, undercut it to where I've got room underneath of it uh, and uh, so on and so forth. I don't want to damage the tree or, or hurt the tree. I just want to prune it at the right right time of year. Well, you want to stay away from the really heat of the summer, uh, but depending on the amount of pruning you're doing on each tree, pretty much any time is okay. Even in the winter, some light pruning of your evergreens, like some of your desert trees that you have there, uh, is appropriate. If you're only just doing some light thinning and maybe a little containment pruning, if you're doing some heavier pruning or you're lift, you're raising up some lower branches to try to, you know. Um, make some of those sprawling desert trees uh, a little bit higher, uh, raised, elevated, so you can walk under them. That type of heavy pruning probably should be done in the spring, early spring, uh, or or even in the fall. Stay off of the winter and the summer, the the the, the temperature extreme months uh, for for doing any heavy pruning on any of your trees. Uh, the uh, keep in mind though, when you do start raising up those de- those desert trees, that they rely upon those lower branches, not only for photosynthesis but also for uh, support of the upper branches. So as soon as you start lifting up some of those lower branches, it allows the wind to get underneath those trees, and they're more susceptible to wind damage. You're kind of creating a, a beach umbrella uh, when you uh, l- remove all the lower limbs and and. Uh, just uh, uh, create a bit of a, a, a hazard. So be careful of the wind underneath some of those desert trees that you're starting to raise up. Now, his question was specifically on what sounded like clearing uh, desert landscape and trees. Mm-hmm. One of our talking points here is pruning deciduous trees. Uh, let's let's jump into those. A lot of those, your elms, your ash, pistache, fruit trees, willows, cottons, mulberries— any of your deciduous trees, which are the ones that lose their leaves during the winter, this is prime time for trimming those. Uh, during their dormancy, it's a good time to get in and start trimming. Uh, the uh, Those also include your a lot of your fruit trees, like your peach and your plum, your apricot, your apple trees. This is a, a great time to, to be pruning those. Uh, so uh, the uh, the evergreen trees, a little lighter pruning. As I just mentioned to this gentleman, in this time of year, it's a little early in the season. Um, you know, if you're just going to be doing some lighter grooming, you can be doing that even on your evergreen trees. On the deciduous ones, I, just because it's the great time to prune them doesn't mean you have to. I mean, if a tree doesn't need it, don't don't bother it. No, in fact, again, you can prune almost all of our trees any time of the year. Uh, 
if, if the dosage of the pruning is lower. But there's optimum times for pruning all of our trees. And deciduous trees, winter pruning is really good. The, it's during their dormancy, their sap is not flowing. It's time for you to go ahead and do some of that containment pruning. Uh, and, of course, with, with your, uh, uh, your uh, stone fruits, this is the, the best time to be cutting them back, especially if they produ- are producing fruit on current year's growth like your peach trees. Now is your time to be reducing them heavily so that the, the new growth, which, bear, which produces the fruit, will be at a harvestable height. You don't want those branches getting overextended and too long. When they get loaded up with fruit, they end up breaking. So now is your time to be cutting your apples back, your peaches, your plums, your uh, apricots, and other stone fruits. And do all stone fruits pr- only produce... On new branch growth, on current year's growth, no, you do need to know your your varieties. There's some, you know, some uh, some trees are, are going to be producing wood on older and second and third year growth. So you need to kind of be careful that you're not over pruning some of your trees and taking out all the the uh, um, the, the wood bearing fruit. I mean the the, the fruit bearing wood. Uh, quite a bit. In fact, I was thinking this morning it'd be nice. Maybe even next next month we'll try to publish. A little guideline for the fruit pruning. There's, if you go to the University of Arizona Extension Office, they do have some guidelines, but maybe specific to some of the m- most common fruits, we could put together a little article that would help people to give them some guidance. And I was thinking I might try to do that in this n- next month or so. So, uh, check in on our website. We might try to get that article out and uh, uh, help some of you to give you some specific guidance on how to get those uh, fruit trees pruned and ready for, for spring. That is the nice thing about this to-do, is it's not so timely. You know, that We've got the whole dormant season. They're not going to start flushing out growth. Well, as warm as it is, it may be a little earlier than we expect, but you can still do some of your pruning as those buds start to come. So it's not like you got to get it done, get it done. you got a couple right. days, weeks, well, months to... We really target December and January, so we are getting toward the end of that window. So time to get, get out those pruners on those fruit trees. Yeah, three weeks left. Come on. <laughs> On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, you are tuned in to Rosie on the House. And no matter where in the great state of Arizona, you are listening. The one toll-free number to join the conversation, 888-767-4348. That's 888-ROSIE, the number four, and then the letter U. Going through our January tree care calendar tips. Next on the list is frost protection. It is a warm winter. Yes, you know, normally this time of year we're encouraging our uh, our customers to remember to protect their their plants. And uh, this year we've had a really warm winter and haven't had much occasion to, except for a couple of. Um, uh, a couple of days, uh, several weeks back, we had some really cold weather. It's been a very, very mild winter. Uh, don't be fooled by that. We have often seen these very mild winters or even Januarys and Februarys that tend to warm up quickly. And then we'll have a March or an April um, cold snap, which is really tough on plants, by the way, because they've sort of been tricked into uh, <laughs> an early spring bloom and they'll they'll put on a uh, start to bud and 
and um, and even put on a bloom or put on some new vegetative growth. Even some of our ash and elm and, and uh, other deciduous trees will start to put on their new growth or new spring leaf growth. And then we'll have a late frost and that juvenile uh, growth uh, gets gets damaged. And it's really a, it's, it's a shame. Uh, even some flowers, even some of our little bulbs will start to pop up and then they get blasted with a, a late freeze. So hopefully that won't occur this year. Um, one of the other drawbacks with a warm winter is one, you sometimes don't have the chill hour uh, chill hour requirements met in some of your fruit bearing uh, trees like your stone fruits that require a certain number of chill hours. If we have a very mild winter and not enough of those uh, those chill hours, which are below forty degrees, we'll sometimes not have a very good fruit produ- uh, fruit producing year. In fact, sometimes your fruit trees will just simply won't put on fruit because we don't have that chill hour requirement met. The other um, concern is you get that early bud break, uh, and it will even cause less fruit or less well developed fruit because the the trees are are haven't the buds haven't had long enough time to harden over the winter, so they're not as productive. So we'll have sometimes this early bud break will be there, and they'll produce the fruit, which I mean the flowers which produce the fruit. But it'll be a very weak uh, harvest. So um, this is a little bit of, of a tricky situation: insufficient chill hours or that early bud break producing less fruit. Another concern with a mild winter is that there's the risk of insect higher insect populations in the spring. We uh, uh, often see that th- these um, insects that require a really hard freeze to kill off the next generation. The eggs in the pupil, pupa stage of, of some of these insects, if they overwinter and get into another year, the populations can be doubled or tripled. So be on the lookout if you've, we've had a mild winter uh, for uh, those insect populations, which unfortunately will be pretty heavy uh, in, in the spring. I th- I'm thinking caterpillars. You know, sometimes the caterpillars that have been getting into our our techs, our uh, our our Tacomas, our yellow bells and orange jubilee, our bougainvillea, they could be um, really really bad. Some our our um, our grape leaf skeletonizers, and some of our mites and and other aphids and things could be uh, pretty some heavy populations this year. How do you combat those? I mean, do you, is it chemical application? Do you? F- you had talked earlier about doing con- uh, construction mm-hmm. barriers. Do you put like a chicken wire <laughs> and net it off and put a bunch of birds in there to chew them down? Well, you know, the, you know, nature has a way of um, of uh, sorting these things out. That when you do have those higher insect populations, of course, you know the, the 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 predators on those insects, if they have natural predators like the birds and other insects, will have a will have a, a really good. A really good year, the birds will go crazy, and they eventually will will reduce those populations in Arizona because of our high temperature extremes. Sometimes we have to wait until we start getting our um, temperatures above 100 degrees, where the hot temperatures will will slow down that life cycle and sometimes eliminate the pests. So, but you know, we we um, uh, ascribe to what's called the integrated pest management philosophy, which is. We have all sorts of methods of controlling pests. One is patience and just simply waiting for nature to take its course. That's really the most e- effective long-term solution to many of our pests is to let them run their natural course. 
rather than getting out the, the, the big guns and, and bringing in some heavy chemicals to try to uh, attack these things. Secondly, there are some biologicals and other m- means of, uh, that are le- less toxic to, to the environment, which should be our first choice if we really feel like we need to get some control on some insects in our yard. There are other uh, less toxic means of doing that. And lastly, we kind of hold in reserve some uh, some chemicals that, that might have been proven effective in, in dealing with uh, insects at epidemic populations that are starting to really destroy our landscapes. Then um, sometimes we have to you know step in with the chemical intervention and try to bring an end to the uh, this um, heavy infestation. But yeah, we we try to uh, start with the least toxic method and then move forward from that. And 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 sometimes like by the time we've uh, figured out what we're doing. By the time we've seen the symptoms, sometimes even the life cycle of the pest has progressed so far that we're j- almost at the end of the cycle when we started to see the the the, the adults have moved from the, from the pupa stage into the into their uh, the adult feeding stage, and sometimes they've even moved beyond where it's even uh, reasonable to start trying to uh, chemically control them. Uh, when we started to see the leaf drop and the other symptoms, well, maybe the damage has already been done and the insect has moved on. And uh, we really recommend people to be patient and and not to just uh, uh, start looking for a chemical solution right out of the gate. In addition to our talking tree points for January, this is the time for olive spray. We took a call earlier from a listener in Tucson that said she heard you mention something that you could also apply to mesquites. Let's talk about that the the prevention of that. Blossom. Yeah, if you have some of the the uh, the old world olive trees the uh, that are that are producing olives and you don't want them to be uh, dumping that fruit, this is the time to be uh, calling to get on the schedule to get your olive trees sprayed. So uh, we've got another a couple of months window for applying those chemicals. If you also are planning to do some uh, some olive spraying and your trees are older and, and pretty dense with uh, a foliage, you might want to consider a light thinning of the foliage just so you get better spray coverage. So we recommend pruning your olive trees uh, lightly now prior to the spraying or just make sure you get on the calendar to get that spraying done before that, that window of opportunity comes. Because what the spray does is we it's a these are, are chemicals that, that uh, um, encourage the, the trees to, to drop their, uh, their fruit uh, before it matures. So they have to be uh, sprayed when they're in their bloom cycle. And then it, uh, it kind of, they abort the fruit and they drop the, um, those uh, small fruits before they, they, they get larger. And you can't do that once the fruit's uh, uh, developed uh, on, the, um, on the stem. You can't treat them. Yes, there are some chemicals as well, some that are hormone based, which can be treat can be sprayed on all on mesquites and other legumes uh, to uh, minimize their pod production. This has been a wonderful. Um, we've st- seen some really good results from our recent treatments of of mesquite trees. If you're um, faced with that um, dubious task of having to rake up um, bags and bags and bags and bags of um, mesquite pods and you don't want to do that, um, consider uh, uh, applying a a, uh, uh, a treatment that would uh, minimize that fruit production. And you can contact Sarah through our office 
if you want to ask about some of your your seed producing fruits, uh, we can only apply some of these products uh, to a tree for which it's labeled, and we uh, you need to talk with Sarah and see if your um, your trees your specific trees that you'd like to um, uh, not to be picking up the seed pods after uh, by just contacting us at, at um, itreeservice.com and put in a request, email or, or phone in during business hours and let us know um, what, you're, uh, what you'd like to try to help you with. So that's not a do-it-yourself project, John? That's, that that uh, spray is not available? To- there are some over-the-counter spray products that are, are available. You can contact your local nursery and, and, and ask about them. Um, if you've got some larger trees... You might find it's difficult to spray properly. There has to be some protection of surrounding plants, so you want to be careful that you're not overspraying. I made the mistake of uh, trying it once many years ago and overspraying one of my uh, one of my uh, trees. It was a fig tree, and it completely defoliated, almost killed the tree. Oops. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't realize, you know, that the overspray would, you know, affect trees nearby. So. Uh, it well, if you be, need to be careful, we need to be really careful. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I, I defer to Sarah, our, our plant health care director. She's wonderful, and she can give you um, more specific um, information on uh, on what products are available and how, how we can help you in that regard. Okay, great. And I just came in and showed John a picture that came in by text. Texting is a great way or emailing us info at rosieonthehouse.com if you have something you want us to see, because sometimes things are really hard to explain. So this is a picture of a, and that's actually a pomegranate tree, uh, John, and okay. and it's it's bare right now, and it has a great big old hunk of something. And when you looked on <laughs> that, you called it a... Fasciation. Yeah, so it's like kind of like a deformity or a growth. So, yeah, there's sometimes some, some genetic... Um, malformation of some of the branches and they produce what's called a fasciation and they're kind of they're they're natural we're not sure what causes them but they um they occur on spontaneously on all sorts of trees and shrubs and flowers uh in um and that's what i think you're looking at there in that in that um that that photo you showed me but yeah that's a great idea to send in any photos of of things you have in your yard it's it's a a, a means by which we do a lot of communication uh, through our office with the customers able to send us information uh, by text or email, and it's it's nice to ha- kind of have a uh, um, do a diagnosis lo- um, uh, long distance, and it's a, a fast way to do it. So if you have any photographs of some things you're looking at in your yard and want some quick questions, turnaround answers, we're happy to. Uh, take a look at those and 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 help you uh, find some answers. One last question on that particular fasciitis. Fasciation. Fasciation is um, does she just leave it alone? Does she cut it out, or what would you do with that? It's ugly. You know, we we sometimes have these fasciations in in pine trees and others where it actually is a huge accumulation of vegetative growth, and we 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 sometimes take them out. Okay. Um, they're not hurting the tree necessarily. In fact, when when witch's broom occurs in in uh, in in uh, Palo Verde trees, we just leave it in because even even though it looks a little bit um, odd because it's a heavy accumulation of foliage, it's still photosynthesizing and actually mm. contributing to the health, overall health of the tree. So you don't necessarily have to take them out, but if it's if it's a uh, um, kind of destroying the overall aesthetic appeal of the plant, you might want to consider clipping some of that out. Sure. Thank you.
You're sure trying hard, John. I have wanted to plant an Aleppo pine tree row across the south side of our property, and everyone keeps telling me, you don't want Aleppo, you want Afghan. I'm like, no, I love the Aleppo look. I love those horse properties on mature irrigated uh, historic areas. You know, you've got some in Glendale, Queen Creek has a lot of them. And there's just something about that row of Aleppo plant. Aleppo pines and everyone's plant the Afghan plant the Afghan they're better and you've got this uh, Aleppo tree pine blight issue that uh, I keep hearing more and more about that you're 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 trying awful hard to convince me into an Aleppo or uh, out of an Aleppo into an Afghan (laughs) well yeah the uh, Aleppo pines have a uh, have a blight and a blight is a you know simply a recurring symptom for which there is no known pathogen that's causing it. And it's, you know, this Aleppo pine blight seems to cycle through, you know, from time to time. It's It might not be very prevalent one year, but then the following year it is. Uh, back about 10 years ago, we had some serious issues with uh, Aleppo pine blight across the Phoenix area. Uh, devastated a lot of trees. This year, is one of those years. We started seeing the symptoms late late uh, last fall, uh, right through the winter. And uh, I have several Aleppo pines in my yard that are just um, got hammered pretty hard, pretty, pretty badly. What happens is you start seeing uh, the needles on your Aleppo pines start to turn gray, and then they eventually brown out, and you start losing um, uh, the needles. And if you start seeing those uh, that those symptoms on your on your pine trees, those needles will will die. There's no recovering those. They you know once you start seeing the the browning, uh, the the needle is ha, has died, and the it might affect parts of the trees. Sometimes you'll see it just on the outer uh, tips of the branches, which unfortunately is the is where the marrow stems, the the candles on the pine trees that produce the new needles uh, are located. So if you start losing the outer um, uh, ends of the branches, it's a shame because then the tree has to uh, find ways to reroute uh, new energy reserves to to start new growth somewhere below those blighted uh, branch tips. Um, It's unfortunate, as I said, because there's no known pathogen. There's been a lot of research on this. Uh, The indications are that it's caused by drought stress possibly even the fluctuation in our temperatures. Arizona is, is unique in that we have we can have 17 degrees and we can have 117 degrees. There's not too many places in the world that have 100-degree temperature swings. This could be very difficult for these medi- these, uh, these trees. The, the Aleppo pine is from the Mediterranean, the Afghan pine from, uh, from the Middle East. These are areas that are, are have, have different types of rainfall patterns. The Aleppo pine is used to in its native habitat uh, uh, to have 40 plus inches of rain a year. Here in Arizona, we have seven. We can supplement that 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 annual rainfall here with our irrigation systems, uh, and we need to do it regularly if we want our trees to have the ability to handle some of these stresses. But whatever those causes are, whether it be the drought stress, um, the uh, the fluctuating uh, temperatures. Uh, our, of course, our low, low humidity, too, doesn't help either. As I mentioned a little while ago, sometimes it's not just the high temperatures, but it's the wind, the low humidity, the, the desiccating uh, um, power of, 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 of dry winds in the, in, the, uh, in the summer can just uh, take a lot of the moisture out of our trees. 
And if the moisture through evapotranspiration is exceeding the amount of water that's being taken up by the root system of the tree, you get leaf and needle drop. And uh, in this case, with the, this blight condition, it's devastating. All of a sudden in the winter, the trees start, these pine trees start losing branches and losing these needles. And there's something that just can't be made up for if you're going from, you know, Arizona where you get seven inches of rain toward the Mediterranean where there's 40 inches of rain. There's something about that rainfall that it does to the trees. I mean, you can irrigate as much as you want, but I mean, just sit back and watch. I've done very good at keeping up with the irrigation on our trees, but just this rain that hit us after 100 days, there's a different type of greenness. You can tell they've all perked up. There's, sure. That's hard to supplement uh, what our true rain soaking does to the tree health. It is, and, and, and it seems to, to me, by my experience, that it, it may not be irrigation-related because even trees that are in well-irrigated areas are, aren't, aren't immune to this, and they—, they uh, have also shown some of these same types of symptoms. So uh, it, it is. It looks like it's climatic. It is um, sometimes this, the the results that we start seeing late in the year really occurred in the summer. So we're starting. We see the results of it in the winter as these needles start to drop. But it could have been that that really wicked hot summer we had this in June. Those record temperatures put extreme stresses on the trees. And maybe they've never they haven't recovered, and then in the winter when we get these colder temperatures coming, those needles are responding and dropping. Uh, what to do about it? Uh, first of all, don't overreact and start taking trees down. If your tree has minimal damage, it will drop the needles and simply replace them in time. You'll find that sometimes the twigs and the branches that support the needles are still are still flexible and green. They just need time to drop. They'll have to go through a cycle of dropping those dead needles, and it'll be a six- or eight-month period of time because those gray needles will turn brown, but they'll persist on the branches. And if somebody wanted to contact a certified arborist for additional uh, consultation, <laughs> itreeservice.com? itreeservice.com. Give us a call. We'll come out and check it out.